Welcome to this week's episode of the Wonk and Circumstance podcast. Today we have a very special episode for you. We'll be tackling one of the most controversial and sensitive issues of our time, the death penalty. As of this recording, the state of Florida has a legal death penalty system. Last year, the Supreme Court of the United States struck down Florida's death penalty system because a unanimous jury was not required in order to force the penalty of death on someone who was convicted. However, the 2017 legislative session saw a bill pass both the House and the Senate and already be signed by Governor Scott, which will now require a unanimous sentence when the penalty of death is imposed upon someone convicted of a capital crime. Despite the fact that the issue has been resolved from a legislative perspective, this is still an issue that causes an extreme amount of controversy and strong emotions from people on all sides of the issue. This week, we're doing something a little different, and we're bringing you four different perspectives on this issue. Each of these perspectives were interviewed individually, and we will bring them to you as such. Since the death penalty is legal in Florida, we will present to you the two interviews we conducted who are against the death penalty first, as they would have the burden in a legislative session to change the law. First, we will hear from Father Willie Garcia Tunyong, who will be presenting an argument against the death penalty on moral grounds. My name is Father Guillermo Garcia Tunyong, Father Willie, everybody calls me that. I'm a Jesuit priest. Uh, and currently the president of Belen Jesuit Preparatory School and the director of the Agrupación Católica Universitaria in Miami, Florida. What is the Catholic Church's position on the death penalty? The Church's position on the death penalty is uh, against. Uh, the, uh, the Church has always been a, um, a, a, a church that has been very pro-life, and the understanding of pro-life for the Catholic Church is that we have an obligation to defend life from the moment of conception to the moment of natural death. So everything in between has to be respected. We, the Church understands that life is sacred and every life uh, is endowed with, um, with the the divine component of being created in God's image and likeness, and that creates an automatic dignity that does not get erased uh, because of either physical appearance or sexual identity or acts that are done or not done. You know, the dignity of the human person is intrinsic to the human condition as a son or daughter of God. And so life has to be defended and has to be taken care of and respected. Um, So the position with the death penalty is to be against it because it does not recognize the dignity of the human person that we are referring to. Are there any instances at all where using the, the death penalty or capital punishment is considered to be morally acceptable? You know, one of the things about morality in the church and the Catholic Church's moral theology is a very well-developed theology. And like in many other components of the Catholic Church, there's an understanding that there is an objective or more abstract, like the abstract theology can 
come up with a lot of literature and theories and rational thoughts as to the reason why something is right or wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, the ethics and moral theology of the church is very, it's, it's extensive. But then there's something called pastoral theology, which is how do you take that moral teaching and apply it more practically um, with individuals and situations? And if there's one thing about morality is that uh, mor morality creates a situation of a lot of gray area. So I can be able to tell you the difference between right or wrong and say it is wrong to steal, mm -hmm. for example. But then, of course, you have to take into consideration situations, uh, what they oftentimes call situation ethics, actually, mm -hmm. which depends on what the circumstances are. So uh, even though there is a commandment that says thou shalt not steal, mm -hmm. uh, is it the same thing for a man to steal uh, a car because he wants a you know a fancy car like a Porsche or a Ferrari as compared to the individual who steals, for example, a loaf of bread because his family is going hungry? Yeah. So both of them are acts of thievery. Uh, and obviously, you shouldn't steal. But the circumstances of one are very different from the circumstances of another. So that kind of situation ethics, it's important to be able to understand as well because life is not black and white. Okay. Uh, anything that involves human beings, there's a gray area there. But that, when applied to the death penalty, has to be taken on both ends as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, is there a circumstance, you ask, is there a circumstance in which the death penalty may be morally acceptable? You know, the church's position is very strong against the death penalty because look at it on the other end of it. What are the circumstances that have been created by our society, the communities that we live in, which uh, has a tendency of creating or generating or nurturing uh, violence, uh, immor immorality. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how much at fault is the society in general, even though you never remove the individual's responsibility for the way that he or she acts. But there is a nurturing of our society, which is not always conducive to the good. That's why I've always seen the death penalty as the way to resolve a larger problem that we have in our society. Uh, society creates, it, and I've always always used the example of Frankenstein. You know, Dr. Frankenstein uh, creates a monster, and when he realizes that he can't control the monster, he wants to kill it. Mm -hmm. uh, wants nothing to do with it, and wants wanting to kill it. And unfortunately, at the end of the novel, Frankenstein, you realize that the monster actually kills Dr. Frankenstein. And it's very applicable here. Society has a tendency of going overboard, creates these, you know, contributes in the creation of these monsters. And then when we have to deal with them, we decide that the best thing to do is just kill them off. But at the end of the day, that kind of a perspective is going to end up hurting society in general. Because what happens is what Pope John Paul II wrote an encyclical. The encyclical was called the Gospel of Life, mm -hmm. Evangelium Vitae. And in that, and in that encyclical, Pope John Paul II came up with a concept which is a very powerful concept, which is the differences between the culture of life and the culture of death. And the culture of death, what he means by that is a society that behaves in a particular way that generates a culture of death. So things like abortion, things like euthanasia, and things like uh, capital punishment, which are society's very quick and supposedly easy way of disposing with its problems. And what it does is that it generates a, a disposable society where you can dispose of things whenever you need to, 
whenever they're not convenient, whenever they're not good for us or too expensive or problematic, which then for leaves you know human life uh, with the lack of dignity that it deserves. If the position is that the penalty itself is immoral, does that mean that the actors that participate in the death penalty process in something that was once called, I believe, by Justice Scalia, the mechanisms of death, does that make the actors in that system then immoral? Sure. Well, there's a level of being implicit, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's applicable also to abortion, for example, as, for okay. example, a doctor or a nurse or even a hospital that takes part in that. The individuals who take part in these kinds of actions are also implicit, and there is a, a, a level of fault to they're committing the act. Uh, I understand that there are, you know, obligations from a perspective of uh, employment that you have to the state or to the county or to your superiors. Uh, but that's why one of the most beautiful things about the human condition is that we have been endowed with the use of reason and the ability to say no and to take a stand. There are consequences, of course, towards that, but those things that are worth fighting for always have a, a cost. There is uh, there's a specific episode of The West Wing that I have in mind, and I'll give a very brief synopsis because it's about this. It's early on. It's about the death penalty. President Bartlett is a devoutly Catholic character, and he has to sign the death warrant as the executive for someone who is slated to be convicted or to, to be executed. They've already been convicted. And at the end of the episode, he decides to sign the warrant. He immediately takes confession from his, from, uh, his, his local uh, uh, priest who had flown down from New Hampshire, I think. Was that confession necessary? By signing that death warrant, does the president, in that sense, as somebody who believed that the death penalty was, was immoral, did he commit an immoral act? Well, I will tell you this. You know the determining factor for what is... What, what, one of several determining factors for what is sinful or not sinful, therefore requires or doesn't require a confession, is one's own conscience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whether he believes that. So he's the doing fact is, wrong. you know, you have an objective reality: the church's position against capital punishment. You have an objective reality, which is the sanctity of life, and then you have another reality, which is somewhat subjective, which is what my conscience tells me. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a difference between an informed conscience and, an, and a misinformed conscience. You know, I could, it, it's not good enough to be able to say that I can kill somebody and because my conscience was not informed or because of the fact that I don't feel guilty about it, it's okay. That's not the case because, there's, first of all, there's an objective reality you can't sure. kill. But also, there's a responsibility for the conscience to be informed, to be aware. And there are circumstances that sometimes will... Uh, that justify a, that a, a conscience inability to be informed properly. So, for example, you know, for as for as terrible as killing may be, you know, how morally responsible were the Aztecs for offering human sacrifices back in the day? Mm-hmm. Well, you're talking about the fact that there was a it was a cultural trait accepted by the whole community, and the conscience of those individual uh Aztecs was not informed and they, it's understood why they weren't informed because of the context and the society and all that stuff uh, but there's an objective reality you shouldn't be killing these people okay. so in reference to your 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 analogy to the situation with the West Wing mm-hmm. you know the fact that the individual or the penitent felt the need to uh, have his confession heard is very indicative of the fact that he felt that you know, what he was doing was wrong. 
So did it warrant confession? The answer would be yes, of course. The sacrament of reconciliation is, is there in order to be able to relieve the individual of a guilty conscience, uh, but also understanding that he has a moral responsibility and also calling him to task. Um, and, and therefore, hopefully, from that perspective, then, you know, uh, not doing it again, which is what normally you know, what should happen. You know, the, Tough position for an the, executive. Yeah, it's very difficult. But then again, look, I, I always I always go to this. You know, it, that's obviously a very difficult situation. And, we, you know, you're you're, off, you're you're basically saying, well, you're telling this individual that he's got to sacrifice, you know, his position or would have to would have to possibly sacrifice his position for the sake of that moral principle. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I hate to say this, but, that, you know, at the end of the day, that's what heroes are made of. Sure. Heroes are the individuals who are willing to sacrifice life and limb, mm -hmm. career, for the sake of a strong moral principle or conviction. You know, those are the guys who make the papers, not the other guys. <laughs> Anything else you want to say that I may not have touched on? Well, I, I one of the things that I think for me is very important is that the uh, the position of the Catholic Church is very consistent. And what I mean by that is, you know, we have the pro-life movement in this country mm -hmm. and there's an annual march in Washington, D.C. that gathers, you know, a million people. Yeah, it was just a, a month at, at Washington, D.C. But the thing is that there seems to be a misconception out there because people think that the March for Life is only for in reference to the abortion issue, Roe versus Wade. You know, the pro-life position of the Catholic Church includes the capital punishment component. You know, there's a, there is a very clear stand that uh, the church has had. Pope Francis has most recently, you know, uh, cleared the understanding on the part of the church that capital punishment is 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 immoral. Um, oftentimes, um, theologians, moral theologians, and ethicists uh, will throw out the argument of self-defense mm -hmm. in order to justify capital punishment. Because there is a self-defense uh, argument for use of force or violence. Mm -hmm. uh, if an individual is coming at me with a knife and is about to kill me, and I have to defend myself, then you know, is that killing of the of the aggressor is it morally uh, unacceptable? Is it sinful? And of course, the answer to that is no because of the context or circumstances that you're put into. Sure. And a lot of people would extend, extend that self-defense uh, claim to, uh, to the death penalty. In other words, these individuals are coming towards society with a knife, and we have the right to put them to death in order to be able to defend our right. Uh, the, where, where, where I think the argument falls short is that the self-defense argument is a very important one and a very well-developed one. But there's also specific components about it that are that need to be pointed out. In other words, uh, the one who takes the initiative is not the is not the one who defends himself, but the aggressor. You know, the aggressor takes the initiative, and you have to respond to that. You know, in the situation of a death penalty, when you have the individual locked up and awaiting trial, the the even though there was initiative on the part of the offender because he had committed a crime or some heinous act. But now that you have that person in a situation where you can uh, respond more appropriately, uh, the situation changes. Another thing about the self-defense, you know, argument 
is that it could it should only be used as a la- it needs to be used as a last resort. Mm-hmm. Uh, in situations of capital punishment, it's not it's not a last resort because now that you have the person, even let's say the person is jail, well, there's you know how about you know uh, life imprisonment without parole? How about all these other different things? So it's an argument that you can make, but it's too much of a stretch, and that's why it falls short in the opinion of the church. There are also those that present a case against the death penalty from a practical perspective. One such person is our next guest, Francesca Corallo. My name is Francesca Corallo. I studied criminology in undergrad at the University of Florida and went to law school at the University of Virginia. And during my second summer at law school, I went to Houston, Texas and volunteered for a nonprofit called the Gulf Region Advocacy Center which was an anti-death penalty organization. Practically speaking, what is the difference between taking someone you know is guilty of killing, let's say, seven people in cold blood, premeditated? What's the difference between putting them in life, in jail for life, or executing them? What, why should it really matter? So these trials for capital murder, they are extremely expensive. They put a big strain on the current, the courts, the county courts in particular. And of course, the public defender's office is overworked as it is. And so there's a lot of human capital and actual funds that are put towards putting people in jail and finding them guilty of capital murder and executing them. And aside from that process alone, finding them guilty in the trial, there's also the cost of actually executing them. For example, the counties, they have to manage these high costs for these trials by either increasing taxes or spending less money on infrastructure and police, things that actually, I think, benefit the community more directly, whereas there's really no direct benefit, like financial impact that's uh, that benefits the public by keeping by by executing them. So the the it's actually cheaper to keep somebody in jail. It's cheaper to it's cheaper to keep somebody in jail with life for life without parole than it is to execute them, and the money that's spent on executing them takes away from the money available for other services that I think directly impact the the population. But what about the argument that regardless of cost, that the death penalty serves as a deterrent for people to think twice before they take somebody else's life because at the end of that conviction is a, a lethal injection or whatever other means the state uses? It doesn't work. It's proven to not work. The states, in most states that allow for executions are in the South. The South has a much higher crime rate than the Northern states. There is no direct correlation between uh, death sentence, like states that allow the death sentence and that having any deterrent effect on capital crimes. There are, I think it's, they said, there was a study that came out and it was done by some professors at the University of Michigan School of Law and also the Michigan State University Law School. They worked together and they found that 4% um, of people that are convicted and actually executed are innocent. So 
there are people that are innocent they're still getting killed if you're if let's say florida okay so florida would save according to so, some statistics it would save 51 million per year mm-hmm. if they just punished all first degree mur- murder with life without parole instead of the death penalty so this is removing people from death row and putting them onto uh i don't know supermax or whatever right for life can never leave they're you know so they're not no, they're not going to be a danger to society so there goes that argument they're 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 done they're in there and that's despite the fact that they are kept in jail for significantly longer periods because they're not executed Yes, even though it, it still takes that into account, like they're going to be in jail for much or prison rather much longer than than they would be because at some point they would be executed. But it's still it's still cheaper for them to be in jail for the rest of their lives than it is to be executed. But I mean, if you execute them, they can't escape. They yeah, can't. How often? I think that the rate of of escape from supermax is probably pretty low. I don't know off the top of my head, but. I would say it's low. It's probably insignificant. I'm not sure if we have an epidemic of escapes from supermax. I don't think so. And even still, they would escape before they're actually executed. They could still escape. So I don't know if executing them would really like that have a huge effect on that. Okay. But so if you have, if you're saving, if Florida saves fifty million a year, let's say, mm-hmm. by not having the death penalty, then if and if 4% of the defendants could be innocent, then I can't do the math off the top of my head, but whatever that percentage is, that's what it would be like $5 million, I'd say, four or $5 million. Two. Two. Okay, sorry. I don't know. But that's... Not a lot of math in we're the legal spending, field. Whatever, yeah. Two, we're spending $2 million on killing innocent people. Every year. On top of it. Yeah. Assuming all of these statistics are right, and I don't know this because this number 51 million is in Florida and the number of the defendants that are innocent, that's like nationwide. But as a rough estimate, who cares? We're, let's say we're spending 500 grand on in, on killing innocent people. That's money they could be going to schools mm-hmm. and things that actually are proven to deter people from going to prison mm-hmm. and committing crimes, especially violent crimes. Is there some sort of, of harm to the state then by having the death penalty? Is this something that could potentially hurt the states that still use it? Because I'm, I'm trying to think about from a practical perspective, we still have a significant number of states in the United States that have the death penalty. Why? They're, I think that they're doing it because of their beliefs, um, you know, mostly red states, some some Christian denominations believe in in the death sentence, and so I think that the constituents of those states of the government they they want that, and I think that yeah I think the government is shooting itself in the foot in allowing that because those states tend to be poorer states, mm-hmm. and that means they don't have a huge tax base, and what they and the tax money that they are able to bring in they're spending a, a huge amount of it on death death penalty cases and executions whereas they should be focusing on lowering the crime rate by investing in education and making jobs like if you are putting money towards improving your roads and infrastructure you're creating jobs that also leads to you know that lowers the uh, the rate of crime the crime rate so yeah i think they're shooting themselves in the foot so there really is no what's the name the 
there really is no uh, effect on on murder. I mean, it seems like if all of these states had continue to have the death penalty, I mean, they're not. It, it can't simply be because of inertia. Like they have to, they have to have some reason for keeping it. I think they're keeping it because of their beliefs. The the people that live in those states believe in things like an eye for an eye, and so. I guess that the elected officials might either they themselves are also proponents of it or they are afraid that if they were to actually remove the death penalty that it would affect their ability to get reelected. I'm not really sure. I don't I don't think that all of their decisions are based on what makes the most sense in terms of like, you know, the budgets and all of that. Obviously, like it's I think it's more about pleasing their constituents or themselves if that's what they believe in. I know you're not a prosecutor, but if you had been a prosecutor or at some point you find yourself there in the future, would you be able to uh, charge someone with a death penalty or would you have to step aside from that case? a good question <laughs> i know it's a hypothetical but and and uh people in the legal field hate hypotheticals but <laughs> okay well for if my job is to represent the state mm-hmm. and the government and the government the laws on the books are that you can seek that and that's what they want if that's i mean they're my the government's my client the people i represent the people if the people want that, then I guess I have to do it or else I'm not able to do my job. But morally, I wouldn't want to. And that's why I would never actually take a job as a prosecutor. But okay. if I had to, you look, sometimes as a lawyer, you have to do a lot of things you don't believe in or agree with. But that's part of the job. So so even even with all of the, the evidence that you've cited that makes you believe that the death penalty should be repealed, even before the morality of it. You would still you wouldn't like go to your boss, but like this actually doesn't work. Like why I are we would doing try this? that, yes, but if I had to do it, I mean, my job is not to try to you know convince them and show them that the budget it doesn't make sense financially. Like my job is to represent the interests of the people and their and what they want. I would try, yeah, off the record, like privately, but and and the budget wouldn't work. We just learned a few minutes ago lawyers aren't very good at math. <laughs> but still, I mean, I could if I had some time in Excel, I could do it or a calculator. Sure. I'm just <laughs> but I that's a, that's a separate thing. That's when you you know, like I said, lawyers, defense attorneys, they have to defend people they know are are guilty. That's part of the job. Is it possible for you to be able to separate the moral side of this question? without the uh it's and strictly say the death penalty should be removed simply because of the money or going back to thinking of something like you know an innocent person might be executed that's kind of a moral question is it are the two arguments just so intertwined they're hard to separate i think it's easier to just avoid the, the morality of it you can totally make a like a decision based on the numbers like if somebody really took the time to figure out this is what we could be putting money towards. Like, there, I mean, it's clear that we're not putting enough money towards things like education, infrastructure, all those things. I mean, in Georgia, a piece of like the highway just collapsed. Like, oh, you know, money would have been better spent avoiding such a problem like that. Any closing thoughts? I think that a better use for the money, if they're not going to put it in education, 
and they're not going to put in infrastructure, all those things. I think a better use for the money would be to invest in psychiatric facilities, psychiatric care for the poor, for the veterans, because if you really take a look at the types of people that commit most of these capital crimes, I think they're mentally ill. And so maybe if they actually really, if the government really cares about preventing these sorts of violent crimes, they should, if not put the money in education, maybe consider providing psychiatric assistance to poor people. Capital punishment does have its supporters across the country. Many of its supporters advocate for keeping the current system, that is, a death penalty system where those convicted of first-degree murder and high treason at the federal level are allowed to be put to death. However, other crimes do not apply. One such person is Arthur Freire. A brief disclaimer. The following interview was conducted in a public setting, and therefore is a little noisier than what you're used to on the podcast. Okay, well, hi, my name is Arthur Freire. I'm an attorney here in, uh, in Coral Gables, Florida. I work for a law firm called Poblet Tamargo, and our focus is more on, uh, on policy and, and here in Washington and in, and in Florida as well. Right now in the state of Florida, we have a system where capital punishment is possible for cases that involve first-degree murder, and that's about it. Why, in your eyes, is that system a good one to keep going forward? Well, I think you have to understand a couple of things that under Florida law, and let's even go back further, back to the common law, uh, back in England, murder is, there were certain degrees of murder. So first degree murder would be somebody that you would, in, you would intentionally kill. Um, you plan it, you, you scheme, you develop, you, know, you, you sort of plan this, you plan it and then you follow through. Um, second degree murder is considered um, reckless. Uh, it's a reckless disregard of human life. Um, it's not. It's a little bit different than first degree in that um, you didn't plan to kill somebody. Uh, you were just reckless in how you ha- you acted. Um, manslaughter is considered third degree, and that is something that is completely different. That was that's something that the, the courts recognized. You had no intention. It, it, it was an accident, and so. Because of that, um, because you have these varying degrees of, of, of murder, uh, ranging from the most extreme, which is you plan to kill somebody, to the other extreme, to the other end of the spectrum, which was it was accidental. You didn't mean for it. You didn't intend it. You didn't even think about it. You know the punishment needed to be needed to vary. So in Flo- so the common law at the time, you know the punishment was that if you did intend, you know if you planned to kill somebody, and that was your intent. You follow through on that plan, then the punishment is death. For those, for the other various degrees, the court recognized, you know what, death is not a right, it's not the proper punishment because there was no, there was, like I said, no, no, no act or planning of that, of that. It, it was an accident. And, you know, the fact that you're going to have to live with it, that's punishment enough. How do we get to the point where the state is actually taking the life of someone, regardless of their guilt level? So, I mean, it goes. You could go back, back to the Middle Ages. I mean, but if you wanted to, you could even go back further as to ancient, you know, ancient times. Go back even, you know, you look at, you know, for instance, you look at the Bible, and you look at, you know, Leviticus. You know, it's the 
it's the third book of the Bible is considered one of the most, it's considered a, a book on, on civil law as well as the religious law. And even there, you have this, there's this recognition um, that recognizes, it goes back to intent. Um, if you intentionally kill, that's the death penalty. But is if it was accidental, then the penalty was different. And so, think if you want to look at it from that way, think about going from ancient, from the ancient, you know, Judeo-Christian value, um, and this thought process, and, they, and the court, you know, as, as as European societies become less pagan and they become more Christianized in the Middle Ages, well, they borrowed that concept and they look, they took that concept and they said, okay, how we're going to how how are we going to model our our penal code? Well, there is this there is this, you know, we have this uh, boilerplate. And we'll just apply it. So the state, literally in uh, in Europe, you know, basically says, okay, this so if this is what they do, then we're gonna we're gonna literally apply it. We will then, you know, and that's really where the genesis really comes from of these various degrees of, of penalties. It's go, you know, that's how far back it goes. It's definitely a historical punishment. But what would you say to people who, uh, not just in the United States but elsewhere in the world, have argued? that it's time has come, that it's time for the government and the law of the quote-unquote civilized countries to move past uh, such a terminal punishment, for lack of a better way of putting it, and to take the people convicted of capital crimes and having them put in jail for the rest of their lives rather than ending the life. On one end, I sort of understand it, but I think the art. I think part of the argument is what is the role of the state, and I think if you go back to, you know, and that's really for discussion. Uh, and if you go back to the ancient times, the state was recognized as being one as being one that executes justice. Um, as for modern times, and, and in that sense, I think. You know, the fact of the matter is the person still, you know, he is going to die in prison. What will, you know, what is the difference if a person lives his life out in prison or they serve, or the penalty is served when, when they, uh, when they die? I think that, I mean, you have to look at the crime and you have to look at what, you know, what happened and what, you know, each, each of the facts. You may have a person that has no regret in killing a per- no regret in killing another person, and that person's not going. And that person's going to you know he doesn't care. He you know he or she does not care what they did. They may brag about it. They may be proud about it. You know does that per- you know as a state do you you know that it's an interesting question. What do you how do you handle those kinds of issues? Um, but I think you know it, it, for those that say. For those that say, "Well, what you know, you know, it's too barbaric," you know, it's not really, it's not barbaric because maybe that is the ultimate, you know, it's an ultimate form of justice uh, for the, you know, for the victims, and it's a way for the state, not, you know, it's a way for for people to understand. Look, this is the consequence that if you do plan to kill somebody, you know, this is the consequence and the punishment. Think this through. How many times have it, you know you've heard stories of people that have been reckless on how you know in terms of in the violence that have been reckless? They have, you know they, they shoot people you know in the streets here in Miami you know or in Chicago where you know there there's there's gun battles and then you know people, there's people that die innocent people die in a crossfire. What do you you know 
as a state, what do you say? To, you know, how do you tell people? You know, don't don't do that. Go, you know, we'll send you to prison and that's it. Yet that violence still happens. Now, I'm not saying that you know that if they were to you know that if they were to start executing people left and right, that that would dramatically decrease the crime. But on the other hand, you have to look at is it may cause you know it may cause people to pause and consider their consequences speaking of the deterrence value because it does come up a lot in this discussion does that really matter that much to you would that drastically affect your position on the death penalty if it was shown to be a either a very strong deterrent or a very weak deterrent you know that's a very it's a good question but it's a and it's a hard one to look, to look at because how can you know? How could you get a true measure of that deterrence value? I mean, you literally—it's like do you, would you literally have to you know pull every single person and say, okay, when was the last time you ever thought about you know you wanted to kill somebody for whatever reason? Okay, second—that's the first question. And what did you you know have you ever thought of the consequences? Yes or no? And then the third question is, well, what did you really think about it? I mean, did that penalty really? Th- did, you, did you think that maybe? You know that you would have to either get lethal injection or, uh, yeah, I think here in Florida it's lethal injection. You know, is that a deterrence? And then all of a sudden the number comes up and says, well, you know, 20% of the general population really thought of it and said, you know what, maybe I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to die in a gurney being injected with with poison into my body. You know, it's like, you know, how what what's what would be the magic number that would say this is a deterrent versus not a deterrent? I mean, that's that's really the you have to ask a more specific question or broaden the scope and you know and look at you know look at the historical numbers in terms of, of the murder rates in the state of Florida. Um, and I think that may be a better number to look at um, historically versus just saying you know about say well it's a, you know you know how do you like I said to count the deterrence issue. Is there any way for you to ensure that? There is no innocent person that is executed, as has happened a couple of times recently, while keeping the death penalty intact, or is that something that will always be a consequence of the system? I think it would be a consequence of the system. However, I think I think what the system needs to do is you want to ensure... And you want to take that, those steps to make sure that the, per, you know, the person is given and the state is given every opportunity to investigate each and every allegation. Now, if let's say hypothetically, let's say speaking that they're, you know, based on people that have died innocently, then I think what the legislature needs to do is allow the family of that, of that person to sue the state for, and, and you know, sue them as if they as in a in a civil action, as if this you know, um, it would be the equivalent of um, let's see, it would be the equivalent of let's say if it you know if it, of a you know police car driving recklessly, an officer on duty driving recklessly, and he crashes into another car and kills the other driver. You know that kind of concept should be considered, and I think I think if you were to allow the families. Of those of those innocent prisoners to be able to sue the state for that mistake, I think even that may be that would be a deterrent, or it would call, or it would force the state to be very careful in in, in presenting the death penalty.
How does the morality of the death penalty play into this question for you? Is it a relevant issue? Is it something that you think about? Or is there a separation here and the morality needs to be set aside? I don't think the morality needs to be set aside. I think the morality needs to be discussed. I think you have to you have to incorporate it. To, to separate it, I think, would do a grave injustice to the issue. That being said, you have to under... You have to be very careful in terms of, like, you know, when you have elected officials uh, talking about, you know, well, we're going to improve and expand the death penalty to include other crimes as well. No, I mean, it takes, I mean, the death penalty is something that is, it's reserved, it should be, and it needs to be reserved for very narrow crimes that were done and that were committed. And that really the proper penalty is not, you know, and the proper penalty would need to be looked is the death of that, you know, is the death of that person. It's something that shouldn't be treated lightly um, and, or flippantly. And I would probably would say, you know, morality does play a role. I mean, you have to balance out the interest of the convicted person versus the interest, you know, the interest of the family for justice as well. Any uh, final thoughts, something that I may not have touched on you want to make sure to get in? I think the one thing, and maybe it, we could, it, it could be reinforced, is the fact that with the debt, the state has always had records recognized from the very beginning um, that it's been a you know that it has a role to execute justice on behalf of the victim, and I think the question that it's, we that needs to be asked is what should, what needs to be the proper punishment for the for the crimes? Um, if we are talking about somebody who was very rec- who was I wouldn't use the word reckless, but rather intentional. Um, cold-hearted in their, you know, in the murdering of another human being for whatever reason, then I think that that option needs to be put on, that the option of, you know, the state taking the life of a person needs to be put on the table. As for a matter, we talk a little bit about treason, you know, that's a little bit different. Treason is, you know, traditionally the ultimate, you know, it's betraying of the country, of the homo, betraying of, you know, of the country, the, you know, of the, of the society, of the culture. You know, those things, you know, you want to reserve, you know, like I said, you want to reserve the death penalty for those two, you know, for those two things. And I think to, I think it's a, it's a good discussion to have. It's a discussion that we, you know, it makes society reassess why it does things. But to, on the other hand, but to flip, but to say, well, you know, we've, we've evolved and we've become better. That's not really a good reason just to say why to, to abolish it. There are also perspectives on the death penalty that state that we should not simply have it for murder and treason, but that the system should be expanded to include other heinous crimes. One such person with that perspective is our next guest, Juan Perez. A warning to those listening, especially with children. The following segment will include references to a victim's body parts. If you are uncomfortable listening to this portion, please skip ahead 13 minutes. All right, my name is Juan Perez. I'm a former prosecutor in Miami-Dade County. I'm currently an associate at Hornoback and Sick and Skip, uh, practicing maritime law. And what is your position on capital punishment? You know, it's funny. I was asked that question at my interview by Catherine Fernandez-Rundle when I first became a prosecutor. And... Uh, I was pretty conflicted back then. I still am today. 
Uh, I told her as long as the state of Florida still had the death penalty on the books, I will enforce the laws of the state of Florida if I'm asked to. Uh, that's pretty much my position. I mean, I do believe that there are certain crimes that are so heinous and, you know, the criminal has such a depraved mind that I believe they may deserve it. Um, I'm fully aware of the Innocence Project and all the statistics on all these different cases where there's evidence found after the fact uh, exonerating somebody who's on death row. Um, it is what it is. There's there's not much that can be done about that. The law is set up the way it is in this country. You have a, a trial by jury. Evidence is presented by the state. The jury makes a determination of guilt. And then in most states, uh, actually the Supreme Court has now ruled there has to be a second phase during the sentencing where the jury has to unanimously uh, make a recommendation to the court for the death penalty. So you went to trial and the evidence was stacked against you. Um, I, I believe most of the time, I, I would say the majority of the time, the, uh, the jury gets it right. It's, uh, you, you actually brought up an interesting point that I want to touch on before we go more into the, the nitty gritty of the issue. Uh, the question of when you become a prosecutor about the death penalty, is, is this a situation where uh, the, the state will not accept uh, potential prosecutors who do not believe in the death penalty or who will not enact the laws of the state as the people have written them? <laughs> uh, I would think that's a question you probably have to ask the state attorney uh, from Miami-Dade County. <laughs> I know the question was asked of me during my interview. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't think at the time, however, I answered the question uh, would result in me being hired or not. Uh, I just chose to be honest uh, with Ms. Rundle at the time and I uh, gave her the answer that I did and, and I was ultimately hired. Uh, I've never been given the impression that if you say you don't believe in the death penalty, that they will not hire you. But uh, that's a question I guess you would have to ask, uh, you know, whoever's in charge of the hiring of the state attorney's office. As of now, in many states across the country, I believe Florida is this way as well, the death penalty is set aside specifically for cases of, of murder, first-degree murder. Uh, at the federal level, you can get executed for treason, but I, I don't know the last time that happened. Uh, off the top of my head, <laughs> so, so uh, we'll, we'll put we'll set aside people executed for treason for a second. Um, so, for all intents and purposes, death penalty serves as a punishment for murder, and that's pretty much it. Are there any other crimes where the death penalty would probably be appropriate beyond the scope of just premeditated murder? For me, child rapists. I know the Supreme Court took that up in two thousand eight. Uh, there was a case out of Louisiana where a stepfather raped his eight-year-old uh, stepdaughter. And uh, the way that the Louisiana statutes had it at the time, you could get the death penalty for child rape. Um, so in that case, and I believe the name of that case was Kennedy versus Louisiana, um, the defendant there uh, was actually found guilty and the death penalty was, uh, was his sentence. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And uh, was, I believe it was a five to four opinion. Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion. And uh, what the court decided was that it was unproportional because there was no death, which in my opinion doesn't really make much sense because if you think about it, you've just raped an eight-year-old child. You know, the facts of that case were pretty gruesome. Um, her rectum was actually pushed into her vaginal walls and uh, her perineum was actually torn all the way down to her anus, which she required emergency surgery, and uh, they had to put a feeding tube into her, you know, to actually help her, uh, you know, 
with defecating and things of that nature. So it's pretty gruesome when you when you read the facts of that case. But the Supreme Court determined that the Eighth Amendment found uh, it was cruel and unusual punishment to sentence someone to death where there was no uh, the victim did not die. From your perspective, what what is the the reasoning then? Because if the, the Supreme Court says that somebody isn't isn't killed, it, it I guess doesn't follow the old eye for an eye concept. But uh, you know, what's the argument behind extending the death penalty for somebody like that? I mean, it's it sure sounds like a heinous crime, but the person still was alive, the victim. Well, because to me, even though you didn't kill the child, uh, you know, you've destroyed that child for the rest of her life psychologically. You know, sometimes a child won't even be able to give birth, won't be able to get pregnant and give birth later on in life. So you, you've deprived that person of any meaningful life, in my opinion, when, when you put them through that. You know, they've lost their childhood innocence. They've essentially lost their, their, their soul to me. Uh, you know, you're a parent or in a, an adult in a position of power, and you're, let me think about it, think about what you're doing. You're, you're raping a child, a helpless person. Uh, so to me... A child rapist is so sick and depraved that the death penalty would be appropriate in my in my mind. Would the standard in for choosing criminal cases that would qualify for the death penalty, would it be something like that where a, a child is involved or where the impact on the victim or victims' lives is so severe that it is similar to taking that person's life? I, I believe in a child rape situation, yes, I think it is similar. Um, I mean, you, you would have to look at the psychological effects that that person's going to suffer for, for, God knows, the remainder of their life. You've definitely stolen their childhood from them. I, I definitely believe that. In, in that situation, I mean, especially when you look at the facts of the, of the Kennedy case that I, was, that I was referring to earlier, it's so gruesome. And not, only, not only did he rape the stepdaughter, but he also, you know, forced her to lie and say that she was raped by two neighborhood kids. You know, so he, he manipulated her after the fact and made her suffer through having to hide this from everyone. You know, eventually, uh, you know, the victim, the, ch the child in that case, you know, confessed to uh, to another family member what had happened. But if you look at, you know, most of these child rape cases, that's part of the problem. You know, you've got a kid who's afraid to tell the truth uh, because they think they're going to get in trouble for it or because they're protecting a family member. So it's, it's really, it's a crazy situation where they're also, they also have to face the burden of walking around knowing they were raped by a close family member and they, they don't know what to do about it. Uh, so, you know, at some point, you know, they also face the guilt of having to say, well, you know, it was my uncle or it was my stepdad or whoever it was. So that's also a, a very huge psychological burden that the kid has to face, you know, after being the victim of a child rape. How does the question of the morality of the death penalty fall for you? Is it something that the punishment itself is is a moral act because it is evening the the field, so to speak, after such a heinous event? Or is it something where you don't think about the morality of it and this is simply a legal question? It's, it's a funny question. Uh, because, you know, as you know, in this country, we separate church and state. So you've got the religious side of it. And usually when we talk about morality, a lot of people link uh, morality and religion. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, law has to do with morality as well. But from the legal position, our criminal code is set up in such a way where you have specific, um, you know, reasons for punishment. You've got specific and general deterrence. You've got incapacitation, rehabilitation. You have retribution. 
Um, so w- when it comes to the death penalty, it's, it's specifically a retribution uh, style punishment. It, it's, ven- it's vengeful. What you're doing is it's kind of going back to eye for an eye. Society says you killed someone, you've taken someone's life. So, you know, whatever you did was so heinous and the, the, the aggravating factors of your crime are so severe uh, that the only uh, appropriate punishment is, you know, to take your life now. So you've got that side of it from the law. Um, obviously, you've got the religious side of it, which is, you know, thou shalt not kill. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it, it's, it's a difficult situation because, again, you've got the Innocence Project and you've got all these people that later on, 15, 20 years later, you find out that they were innocent. Um, that there was the evidence that was not considered at the time or there's evidence that points to another person having been the perpetrator of the crime. But I think those situations are so few. Um, and I know that may sound cruel because you're, you're saying, well, okay, so what if you're that person? What if you're the person who's on death row and there is evidence that you were innocent? You know, why should that person not be spared? Or, you know, why should that person's life not, not be considered or whatnot? But I, I just, I, I feel like depending on the facts of the case, depending on what it is that the person is accused of doing and the, the overall evidence against that person, you know, if, if the facts support the death penalty, I'm for it in, in that sense. Okay. So I guess the, the, I, I guess it sounds like there is a morality to it from your perspective. It's just not, it, it's the totality of the morality rather than just the individual act. So it's something where it, it, it is moral and humane to right a wrong is what it sounds like you're saying. There is, here's, here's the problem. Emotion always factors into it. Mm-hmm. Not, not, not to get political, but right now, you know, what, what we just did with firing missiles into Syria. There's going to be a, a whole sector of the population that says, well, did you see the videos of the children who were suffering because of the sarin gas, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and especially, and, and it goes back to the whole child rape issue. There's an innocence about a child. You know, you see a video where you've got these kids suffering and you're thinking to yourself, why hurt someone who's done nothing, who's an innocent soul, who's basically just been on earth for a couple of years and has no, no real malintent in anything that they do. They're children. You know, so the emotional response is something needs to be done about it. So it's, it's very difficult when you start talking about morality and emotion and then what does the law say, you know, Unfortunately, when it comes to to being on the prosecutor's side, you're you're asked to enforce the law. So it's it's a state by state issue, and you know again, depending on the facts of each case, you know sometimes you're just compelled to, to seek the death penalty. Okay. Uh, any any final thoughts for for the listener for you on this issue? I mean, it's a polarizing issue. It's a complicated issue. Uh, there are times in in my career and throughout my life where I think you know maybe the death penalty should be abolished. Um, but then there are, there are certain crimes again, it's a, you know, it's a factual thing. Uh, I don't know if you recall, but there was the case a couple of years back, um, where there was a boyfriend and a girlfriend who were on the beach and, uh, I, th- I think it was five, uh, five, five defendants who basically came upon them, thought that they had killed the boyfriend, but he was actually alive. And, uh, they raped, they raped the girlfriend and left her for dead also. You know, those, those five people, in my opinion, I mean, what they did was so depraved and it's so disgusting. They deserve the death penalty. I can't recall the name of the case right now, but the, the facts of the case I remember very well. 
The death penalty is an issue, even more so than normal, that brings with it a wide range of perspectives, as you've heard here today. I hope you found this week's episode, as all episodes, informative, especially if you already have a perspective on the death penalty. I hope that this episode helped you to listen to some that may feel differently from you. If you're listening to this episode on the day it's released, April 11th, 2017, and live in Coral Gables, remember that today is election day. You have until 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time to get to the polls. If you are in line before 7 p.m., your ballot will be allowed to be cast regardless of how long that line is. There are three races on your ballot, mayor and two commission seats, and it is critical that you vote in local and, well, all elections. Your friends at VoterAid, the presenting sponsor of this podcast, are here to help you. Go to VoterAid.co, that's V-O-T-E-R-A-I-D.co, and take a five-minute questionnaire. Once you're done, you'll know which of the candidates in all three races most line up with your viewpoints. If you live in Sweetwater, Florida, your election is less than a month away and will be there for you. We're currently polling candidates and we'll be live for that election in just a little while. And for Miami, Hialeah, Miami Beach, St. Petersburg, and Orlando, we're coming your way come October. But until then, stay tuned for another episode of Wonkin' Circumstance next week. <laughs>